How does he offer a free beer sound to you? As a loyal listener of the show, we'd like to reward you with just that. Free beer. Courtesy of our friends at Beer52.com, you have the opportunity to sip eight free exclusive craft beers from around the world. All you need to do is go to www.beer52.com forward slash seeing red and cover just £4.95 for the postage. As an added bonus for Seeing Red listeners, sign up within the next two weeks and get two extra free beers. So that's a total of 10 free beers. Beer 52 traversed the globe to find the best and most interesting beer from the greatest small batch breweries planet Earth has to offer. Each month they deliver a case with a different theme. Themes have ranged from Germany to Korea, Norway to South Africa and even California to Finland, but they haven't forgotten their roots. As an independent UK company, Beer 52 are also passionate about the craft beer scene. And the beauty of Beer 52 is they don't hold you to ransom. There's no lock-in and you can leave any time. I've been a customer for 12 months now and let me tell you, there is no better feeling than arriving home from work to a fresh delivery from Beer 52. Your first box will be sent to you next day and will contain beer from all over Europe. You'll also get the award-winning craft beer magazine Ferment, and if that wasn't good enough, they also throw in a tasty snack. Just go to www.beer52.com forward slash seeing red to get your first case of eight beers for free. And don't forget, sign up in the next two weeks and get an extra two unmissable beers free. That's www.beer52.com forward slash seeing red. That's the word beer, then the numbers five, two, Hi everybody, welcome to Season 3, Episode 5 of Seeing Red, a true crime podcast. Now, your ears do not deceive you, it is me, Bethan, I'm back but back just for one week and this episode is going to be an episode just with me. I've managed to get the baby to go to sleep so hopefully she'll stay asleep long enough for me to record this otherwise it might be in a couple of parts and Mark has some good editing to do. Um, So a couple of apologies. First of all for the sound quality it's going to be a bit like when we used to record back in the day because I'm at home with my microphone rather than the really good microphone which Mark has got Um, but obviously he has that because he's doing the show properly so I hope you can deal with going back in time a little bit to what was the phrase when we used to record on a potato. (laughs) It really made me chuckle. Um, But I really wanted to get an episode out for you and make sure that you still heard from me. And, you know, don't want you missing me too much. Well, I do want you to miss me. I want you to miss me loads. But you know what I mean. I also um, need to apologise in case you do hear Bella in the background. We, well, I did an episode for our patron supporters and you may have seen a couple of comments on Facebook if you're on social media or um, if you're a patron supporter, you might have heard the episode. And we did get some really good feedback that actually um, it's not the end of the world if you can hear her in the background and the sound quality, it's not the end of the world that it's not as great as it normally would be. So I really hope that you are normal listeners as, you know, the majority of our listeners you see on like that we see sort of chatting to us on social media as well. I really hope that you all kind of agree with that and you don't mind this episode. If you think you can't keep going with this because it sounds terrible, just, yeah, Mark will be back with you either next week or the week after and I do apologise. But anyway, this is an episode um, 
that few people have asked me to cover or asked us to cover a couple of people have mentioned Evelyn Foster and I thought actually when I started reading about the case I was really interested I would love to kind of know what your thoughts are on everything as well so we'll get some posts up on social media I'll get Mark to do some discussions and find out what you think because it's an unsolved case um this case is from 1931 as well so it's a bit of a, an unusual time in in our history and there's not a lot of new information available but I kept returning to this I kept returning to Evelyn's case and her story there's two books that seem to be the best ways to learn about this case there's Jonathan Goodman's 1977 book The Burning of Evelyn Foster which used mainly newspaper reports from the time and then Diane James's 2017 book Death at Wolf's Nick The Killing of Evelyn Foster and Diane James was able to gather a bit more information because she was the first person to use the police files. She has painstakingly pieced together a more realistic timeline of events. So she did actually say that um, the book by Jonathan Goodman was actually one of the books that she first read about the case when she was a teenager. And then that's stuck with her and she wanted to follow it through when she was older. So it is a case that really sticks with people. It's one that kind of once you hear it, you just you just want to know more. So please get in touch on the usual ways. So Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, email. Um, and I hope you enjoy the episode. I hope it's not been too strange having just one voice when you've been listening. I will be back. Um, my plan was always to have a good few months off and it's been two months now. So probably towards the end of the year, you should hear us back together again. And we've got some exciting plans and things. And I think you'll all join me in congratulating Mark on doing a really good job and also for doing social media. I was very impressed because I didn't think it would happen. So let's get started on the episode. I'm not going to do patron thank yous purely because um, Mark's in charge of all that at the moment. So um, sorry if you have joined and you were expecting your thank you to be a shout out on this episode. Um, I will leave that for Mark. So he'll do patron thank yous next episode but thank you everybody who is supporting us and continues to support us on Patreon. So Evelyn Foster or Evelyn Foster I think I'm going to call her Evelyn but shout at me if I say it wrong. I think it's Evelyn though. So Evelyn Foster was quite unusual in my opinion as in 1931 she was working as a taxi driver. She was according to reports either 27 or 28 years old and she worked for her dad's taxi firm. Now, it's not entirely unusual for a woman to have had a job outside of their home at this time. One in three women over the age of 15 did work at this point in the UK. But most working women, their jobs were domestic roles. Evelyn had two sisters. She lived at home still and was unmarried. And the family were pretty well off as her father ran not only the taxi firm, but he also had a fleet of cars, buses and lorries. Evelyn was a former teacher and a member of a choir too, and was a popular member of her local community. Evelyn was found by two bus conductors from the firm, near to her car at approximately 10.30pm on the 6th of January 1931, at a spot about three miles south of Kirkwellpington on the Jedburgh Newcastle Road. She was badly burned and her car was still on fire in this remote area of the moors. Cecil Johnson and Tommy Rutherford, the two co-workers, had just happened to drive by when they saw the car smouldering at the side of the road. And when the two men went over to investigate, they immediately recognised the burned out car as one belonging to the firm that they worked for. And then they saw Evelyn lying just a few yards away. She was still alive, although she was barely conscious. So Cecil and Tommy rushed her to the family home where the doctor was called out. 
The men didn't know what had happened, except for some words that Evelyn had managed to get out. She had said to them, it was that awful man. And moaning at the scene, she had said, oh, that awful man, he has gone in a motor car. And then they got back to the house and Evelyn was able to tell her story of what had happened before she died. Apparently, she'd kind of had a bit of a lucid period at this time. Taking one look at her, the doctor knew that she wouldn't make it. Her lower back, buttocks and thighs were so burned, her flesh had burst open, revealing bone. One saving grace was that because all her nerve endings had been burned, the doctor believed that she didn't feel any pain. Her hands and face had suffered burns, and as the police turned up to interview her, she used her last moments on earth to describe the person who had done this to her. But sadly, she didn't survive these horrific injuries, and she died the following morning. Evelyn's last words were, I have been murdered. So here follows the story as told by Evelyn to her horrified family and the police of what happened to her that fateful night. So Evelyn had taken some passengers to Rochester that evening and on her return had been flagged down by a man she didn't know who requested a lift. He told her that he'd been given a lift by a group of people at one point, but they were not going all the way to Newcastle, which was his final destination. There were no buses that ran that far either, so he wanted her to take him to Ponteland to get his bus the rest of the way. Driving alone with a man she didn't know was perhaps not the safest thing to do, but this was her job, and Evelyn's been described as a strong, practical woman who figured she could take care of herself. Also, this was her job, and she wouldn't have done it if she didn't think she could. Plus, the man she picked up was described as well-dressed, softly spoken, and gentlemanly. Evelyn clearly wasn't worried or alarmed. Evelyn Foster's mum did say that the girls had a conversation that kind of discussed this a bit. She said that when Evelyn said she had a job lined up, and she said the man looked respectful and gentlemanly, her sister had suggested that she could take a man along with her as well, um, suggested someone specific, and this was a man that her sister had, in inverted commas, kept company with. And Evelyn had replied to her sister, all right, mother. It does sound like how sisters talk and joke and shows, I think, just how comfortable and relaxed she was. I think if she was actually worried, she either wouldn't have taken the fare or she perhaps would have said to her sister, yeah, actually go get him. So she described the man as young, about five foot six, dark, with slim build, saying he was clean shaven. He was wearing a suit with a, with a blue overcoat and a bowler hat. Evelyn told the man that the drive would cost him two pound and he agreed to the price. Being such a nice woman, she suggested he pop into the Percy Arms to see if anyone there could take him for free, which would save him the fare. Um, so she refueled her car while he went into the bar. But he came back out and said no one's going to Newcastle, so he would take her offer, £2, and she could take him. Evelyn said that she picked the man up on the bridge and drove him as far as Belsay, but then he said there was no chance of him getting a bus. He would return to Ottenburn, and she said she agreed to take him there. She said that the journey was quite normal for a good amount of time with the pair just chatting and whilst the man didn't give her his name, it wasn't really unusual. To be honest, I don't think I've ever given my taxi drivers my name unless it's requested on booking and then they usually call me Stefan, which is wonderful. Evelyn said the man told her that he was from the Midlands and she said he had a Tyneside accent. He also seemed to know quite a lot about cars. But this journey suddenly changed when the man abruptly told Foster to turn back and she asked him why and his mild manner just disappeared. He snarled at her, that's nothing to do with you. He reached over and grabbed the steering wheel trying to take control of the car and when she shouted back, no, I will do the driving, he punched her in the eye. 
She was temporarily blinded and he shoved her over to her to the other side of the car, kind of leaving her arms pinned to her side and he began driving the car himself. When they got out of the village, the man stopped the car at a place called Wolf's Nick where he lit himself a cigarette. Chillingly, he offered Evelyn one and when she was taken aback by this and refused, he mocked her saying, well, you are an independent young woman. So after this, Evelyn's memory was of that night kind of quite hazy and confused. She said she could remember the man beating her and practically throwing her in the back of the car. And then he, in Evelyn's words, interfered with her. Afterwards, as she was lying there in a daze in the back of the car, the man threw a rug over Evelyn. She got a vague sense of him taking a bottle out of a pocket and she felt him pouring something on her. The next thing she knew, she was on fire. She said that the man had set fire to the car and pushed it down the three foot bank. Um, or the other option was he left the engine running and let it carry on. Either way, um, the car kind of went about 70 yards before it stopped. She also said that she thought she heard the man whistle to a passing car. He then managed to make his getaway, perhaps in a car that he'd flagged down or that he'd planned as his getaway. Somehow, Evelyn was able to drag herself out of the car and she dragged her burning body out to the road, praying for someone to come by and help her. She lay there until 10 o'clock when the two men that we mentioned earlier drove past. One of these bus conductors said that the bus had been about four miles from Otterburn when he saw flames coming from the moors and said that when they stopped, they heard low moans. They scrambled down the roadside bank towards the flames and saw the remains of the car, which they said was a mass of hot and smouldering metal. And then they saw Evelyn. They said that her clothes were almost completely burnt, but that her hair had escaped the flames. They said that her face was black and blue and she had a terrible wound to the back of her head. Near the scene of the crime, they also found Evelyn's handbag in the bracken, and that was when the police did their searches. This included a sum of money which was untouched, and the police also found a man's scarf and a glove nearby. Evelyn's sister, who had asked Evelyn to take a man along with her on the job, next saw her when she was brought home injured. She asked Evelyn why didn't she take that man along with her, but apparently Evelyn said she just hadn't seen him to take along. The police got on the case really soon, confirming that they were treating the investigation as a murder case. Some reports stated that Evelyn said she was raped, so they were searching for a probable sex maniac. That is kind of what how he was described in the papers at the time. The police's first port of call was to look for the car that the man said he had been in prior to Evelyn's, the one that wasn't going to Newcastle as he wanted. The police said they were looking for a car with three men in it. It would be a four-seater, closed, dark-coloured car. They had some parts of the number plate available and the car was said to have left the Resdale Hotel near Otterburn at around 7pm. They also had descriptions of these men too, so apparently all of them had Scottish accents. Their descriptions were very detailed. I don't know for definite where these detailed descriptions came from, but basically their first of the men was apparently 38 years old, 5 foot 8 with a short moustache, very bad teeth and dark hair. His hair was thin at the front and he was wearing a dark overcoat with a broad belt and a thin blue striped collar. The second man was about 40, 5 foot 5, apparently badly in need of a shave. He also had very bad teeth. He had a broad face and was wearing a slate coloured suit. The third man was about 30 years old, 5 foot 7, well built and had been wearing a blue overcoat. It sounds like this would be really easy for the police, but these men were never found or they never came forward. And all the leads and clues 
proved to be completely useless. After launching the biggest manhunt that Northumberland had ever seen, investigators could not find a single person who had seen anyone matching Foster's description of her attacker. The barman at the Percy Arms claimed that no stranger had come into the pub on the fatal night, and he also said that Evelyn had not come by either. The day after Evelyn's death on the 8th of January, the Chronicle ran an article headlined Girl Motorist Attacked by Mysterious Stranger, and the nation was shocked and appalled. The article told of how a daughter of an Otterburn garage proprietor, Evelyn Foster, had been the victim of a brutal murder on the lonely Moorland Road um, the night before and stated that the car belonging to Evelyn Foster, the murder victim, who was knocked unconscious and burned almost beyond recognition, was one that she had used to give a lift to a stranger in her car. The papers also reported that she had died from her injuries and Evelyn's dad spoke to the paper about what had happened. There was an outpouring of grief and fear for the tragic victim across the country. So there have been a number of articles and documentaries written about the case. And 88 years later, Evelyn's story is still shocking to us. And this is not just because of what happened to her, but it's because of the way that the police began to treat Evelyn and her story. The post-mortem examination threw doubt on her story because the only injuries that she had were from burns. It said that there were no other external marks suggesting injury and there were no scalp wounds. Her cause of death was given as shock resulting from severe external burning. So the doctor who did the post-mortem said that the distribution and severity of the burns suggested that her clothing had contained some flammable liquid. And the police tried to say that this suggested Evelyn had set the fire herself and gotten caught up in the flames. They suggested she had wanted to set fire to the cab, her taxi, for the insurance and had accidentally set fire to herself. They did say that there was no likelihood of her doing this as a suicide attempt, however. But you're also saying that you think she might have done it. Um, more, The police were more kind of saying it was an insurance job. There was also no um, evidence that Evelyn had been raped. In fact, she had actually died a virgin. The coroner suggested that Evelyn may have been stood with one foot on the step and one foot on the running board and was pouring petrol on the cushions when she had lit it, the flames had kind of come back and set her alight. The coroner also said there was no evidence that the burns were caused by another person. He practically directed the jury to come to that conclusion. And it, the way it's been reported, it sounds like the coroner was basically like, you need to just say this. Luckily, the jury refused and they did deliberate for a couple of hours. And when they came back, they returned a verdict of willful murder against some person or persons unknown. And the coroner then asked the jury whether they found that some person had willfully poured petrol over her and set her on fire, and they said, yes, we do. Evelyn's dad wrote a letter to the Home Secretary which severely criticised the police investigation. He was angry that the car had been left unprotected for hours, so out in the open, and that meant that valid fingerprint samples could not be taken. The police also didn't check for footprints around the scene of the incident, and they themselves trampled all over the scene. The family were left devastated by the loss of Evelyn and one of her sisters was quoted as saying, we were just young then, but that night made us old. We've turned it over and over in our minds since. We were such a close family. The hurt was terrible. And technically this case is still an open one in the Northumberland police files. But even with the verdict of willful murder, the police refused to believe Evelyn's story. There are a few possible factors for this that I wanted to go over in this episode. There were a few inconsistencies with Evelyn's story, which I'm going to try and go through in the most unbiased way I can, even though I'm sure you can tell from my tone that I really dislike the police for this. 
I believe Evelyn. Um, but that's my opinion. So I want to make sure I give you all of the facts. Evelyn had said that the man set the fire when they were at the side of the road and then the car went off into the ditch. However, there were no burn marks between the road and the ditch. So the police were able to determine that the car had been driven off the road slowly or pushed off the road and then set on fire after it stopped. This isn't too strange, surely, because Evelyn was reporting back on something that had happened the night before while she was in agony and close to death. She may well have got some details wrong. And again, something else that she may have made a mistake with was when she said that he had set the fire. The police said the fire had originated from behind the car, not in front. And the police believed that the fire had been set using a tin of gas that was carried in the luggage box at the back of the car. People who knew Evelyn said that she never carried matches or a lighter and actually the police didn't find anything near the car. So if they're saying that she set it herself, it's likely that they would have found a lighter or matches. Some witnesses who saw her driving around in her taxi a short time before she died, well, before she was set on fire, actually, sorry, because she died at home the next morning, but before she was found burning, they said that she was alone in the vehicle. They didn't see her driving a man around. And there was this thing about Evelyn saying that she'd been raped. Now, this actually kind of came from an, a misunderstanding, really. So when Evelyn was first asked what had happened to her, she said nothing about rape. When her mum asked her if the man had interfered with her, Evelyn said yes. Now, interfered could have a few different interpretations. And whilst rape is the first thing that most of us would think about, to be honest, it, you know, did he interfere with you? I would see that as something like that. For an innocent young woman, especially at this time, when things weren't discussed as openly, it could just mean something else. She should, she could have been saying that he interfered with her, as in he shoved her or he, as he grabbed her or something. She did not explicitly say that she was raped and the post-mortem showed that she hadn't been. So the police also found it quite suspicious that the barman at the Percy Arms hadn't seen Evelyn, but she could have met the man outside the pub. I believe that she'd said that she met him on the bridge near the pub, so I don't think she ever said that she went in to go find him. They also began to question her story about the man pinning her against the side of the car before driving it to Wolf's Nick, and I do understand that this would have been really difficult for him to do, but surely it's not impossible. They asked why didn't she just put her foot on the brake, but I feel like she would have been terrified, and also what's she going to do, stop the car and then he's going to carry on I don't know it's a difficult one it's a good question but it's a difficult one they also said there was no sign that she had been struck on her face or in her head in the autopsy but considering the other wounds this could have been burned away or maybe the punch to the face was enough to stun her but didn't leave a mark because I don't think it would take much of a punch I've never been punched in the face if someone punched me in the face quite lightly I think I'd probably be taken aback and a bit shocked especially when I'm having a nice conversation with this guy that I'm driving around, it could, I don't know, it, it is a bit of an inconsistency. The other thing that I found a bit strange was that the guys who found her said that they thought they saw an injury on the back of her head. So that was something I found inconsistent and I couldn't really find a reason for. Evelyn had said that she crawled out of the back door of the car, but the front driver's door was wide open. Okay, so this is again not concrete evidence. Maybe she was turned around because of what was going on in the stressful situation she was saying the front and the back and she got it round the wrong way and Evelyn said that the man had been driving but officers worked 14 hour days collecting over 100 statements and nobody had seen this man driving Evelyn's car 
So anyone who knew Evelyn kind of agreed with the jury for the post-mortem and people were outraged that the police had tried to blame her for her own horrific death. They described her as an honest, hard-working, self-respecting sort of woman who had enough money that she wouldn't need to claim on the insurance. Apparently, the insurance company would not really have paid more than the the current market value of the car, which was less than £100. So would Evelyn really decide to do this and in such a dangerous manner? I really don't think so. I don't know her, but it just seems like a big risk to take for a small reward. But officially, Otterburn's police captain issued a statement asserting that the attacker Foster described simply did not exist. And as far as the authorities were concerned, the case was closed. So why had they been so desperate to close the case? And why were their records not really kept nicely and neatly? This is all conjecture now, but some people have said that the chief constable of Northumberland Police's views were still very Victorian and very outdated for the 1930s. He was an elderly man with no formal police training and he was actually set to retire in little over a year, so it could be fair to say that he was winding down. Some people have said that he was just incompetent and he really didn't seem to like Evelyn and he was convinced Evelyn had lied. In those days, if a woman got to an age like 28 without marrying, they were often deemed hysterical. The chief constable portrayed her as a dirty-minded spinster who had cried wolf. And I believe he was the first to suggest the insurance scam as a reason. He didn't lead his team very well, and whilst they did try their best, they were unable to gather anything concrete. Diane James's book shows just how hard policing and investigations were in the 1930s, one example being that officers had to beg lifts to get to the crime scene, Can you imagine? Like, that would be unacceptable today. Another example was that the police force had to borrow two trained CID men from a neighbouring force because they didn't have a CID force of their own. And as one of the statements from a policeman read, we haven't found a single thing to prove what she said, but we also haven't found a single thing to disprove it. I get the impression that the normal, everyday police officers really wanted to find out what happened to her, but they were kind of stopped quite a lot by pressures from above and also how difficult their job was so where this may be where her story ends but there are two leads for potential men who were Evelyn's attacker perhaps that I wanted to cover off one is a very and I mean very tenuous link and the other seems quite likely and it's my kind of go-to as a theory so the first of the options for Evelyn's killer that have been reported is the very tenuous link I mentioned and it relates to a man named Ernest Brown Two years after Evelyn's death, a 31-year-old farmhand named Ernest Brown shot his employer, Frederick Morton, and tried to burn the body of the man in a car. The motive was simple, jealousy. One of the oldest reasons for murder in the book, Brown was sleeping with his employer's wife. He shot the husband at close range and then set fire to his car with Morton inside of it. I'm guessing he felt like this would mean him and the wife could be happy ever after. Not sure if I would want to then have a happy ever after with the guy who killed my husband, but whatever. The killing took place a 100 miles away near Tadcaster in Yorkshire, and this was offered as a potential in Jonathan Goodman's 1977 book, The Burning of Evelyn Foster. The reasons were as follows. The farm was not very far from Otterburn. In fact, Brown had a friend who lived just outside of the Foster's village. Brown's appearance generally matched Foster's description of the attacker. He described the farmhand as a natty dresser, having a Tyneside accent, and he was also known to wear a bowler hat. Having a friend who lived near Otterburn would have given Ernest a convenient hiding place after the murder of Evelyn, 
And as he awaited execution, a chaplain is said to have told Brown, you should use these last few moments to confess your sins and make your peace with God. It was reported that as the hangman was about to dispatch him, he muttered the word Otterburn. However, the mumbles of the dying man have also been noted as ought to burn too. So whether this meant that Frederick deserved his fate or that the guilty Frederick felt like he was going to burn in hell, I'm not really sure. And obviously, nobody knows for definite what he actually said. And secondly, there's no real context. It could have been Otterburn, though, and he was just mentioning something that he also did. The second option, and one that I do agree with myself, is a soldier that was mentioned to the police. Now, I can't find much information about when this was reported to the police, but the chief constable really didn't care much about following up on this properly. And Evelyn's family weren't even notified of this lead. Someone had reported to the police that he met a man that fitted the description given by Evelyn and had seen this man's face on the front of a newspaper after he'd been charged and imprisoned for four years for a previous sexual assault. And this had triggered a memory. So this witness said that he'd met the man and the case had come up in conversation and the man had said she got what she deserved, which he felt was a really odd thing to say to a stranger. He was also wearing an overcoat and a bowler hat and he spoke about how he regularly stopped people for lifts. Now this was also despite him having a car. The chief constable apparently told his staff something along the lines of the chap concerned is a soldier, so go and ask his colleagues what you think, if you like but he clearly couldn't have cared less about the case. It turned out that the man was on leave from the army at the time of the murder, but there was no fingerprints, no DNA taken from him, we don't even know his name, and this is the part where his bit in the story ends. Obviously, the third option is that there was no other man, there was no killer, and Evelyn kind of messed up this insurance fraud plan, or maybe she just wanted some attention and accidentally killed herself in the process. So what do you think? Did Evelyn accidentally kill herself and try and cover this up with an elaborate story in her dying hours? Was she brutally attacked by a maniac who left her for dead in the burning wreckage of her taxi on a remote part of the moor? I personally believe that she was killed. It just doesn't seem likely that someone would do this for insurance money when they were well off. And the idea of her telling her family about the potential customer seems incredibly premeditated. Would someone who had suffered such horrific injuries really be able to make up such a story? I honestly, honestly believe that the inconsistencies or the strange parts of the story are just purely down to the trauma that she had suffered. However, I doubt there will ever be an answer. We may have a deathbed confession, but the man would be over 100 if he were still alive today. So this seems unlikely. And just eight years later, most of the men in the UK were caught up in the Second World War. So my gut feeling is that this man, whoever he was, is long dead now. And I really do believe that he was the soldier that they investigated quite rubbish investigations, really. Um, That's kind of my gut instinct was that it was him. I found a wonderful question and answer thing from um, www.crimetraveller.org and this was a question and answer with Diane James. Now, I'd really recommend you have a look at this, as well as her book, of course, if this case is one you'd be interested in reading more about. It's a book I really enjoyed, not just from the point of view of hearing about the case itself, but learning a lot about the views of people at the time. And I don't know about you guys, but I love the programme Downton Abbey. And being with a newborn, you need something to binge watch when you're doing those night feeds and when you're up all day just sat there cuddling a baby. So I've been re-watching Downton from the beginning. And 
do you know what the difference in people's beliefs in life I mean Downton is a little bit earlier than this it kind of goes to the uh, mid-1920s but the type of people and the way that women were viewed and what happened especially in this case I think it's very reflective of the time um, so I will make sure that we post a link to the question and answer um, online I don't know what, what do you call it web page web page um, but I'm going to finish this, this episode with the two favourite questions that Diane James answered in the article. So, question. The murder of Evelyn Foster is a tragic case made all the more harrowing by the insufficient investigation into her death by the leading p- police officer. Were you surprised at the extent that some investigators didn't follow up leads or even believe Evelyn's own account made before she died of what happened to her? Diane James. Perhaps less surprised than annoyed, the inquiry was led by the chief constable and he simply didn't know how to manage a major investigation. It is still hard to decide how much was down to his prejudices and how much due to sheer incompetence. By contrast, the junior officers at the sharp end of the inquiry did a sterling job, working long hours and displaying great determination to track down the killer. But sadly, they shared in the general criticism, which was quite rightly uh, directed at their boss. Question. There has always been an air of mystery surrounding this murder case, with some still questioning the account given by Evelyn Foster, especially that she was interfered with before being doused with petrol and set alight. Her memory in this light has been tainted, and she has not necessarily always been viewed as the victim. How did that make you feel, reading all the evidence surrounding her murder? Diane James. The more I read and pieced together, the more infuriated I was on Evelyn's behalf, but also on behalf of everyone else who became a victim. The Foster family were hounded by poison pen letters and accused of being involved in the insurance scam. Completely innocent local people were rumoured to have been involved in the murder and there was ill feeling over the evidence given in completely good faith by some members of the local community. At least one officer felt driven to give up his career in the police as a result of being involved in the investigation, though the records show that he had behaved conscientiously and in good faith throughout. So I really felt like these answers sum up the case and the subsequent investigation. And actually, it made me really like Diane James as an author and as an investigator herself. So there you go, guys. I really hope you've enjoyed this episode. I hope you've enjoyed hearing from me again. Um, I really hope you miss me because I don't want you all to just love Mark and then tell me to never come back. Um, Get in touch in all the usual ways on social media. Let us know your thoughts on the case. And hopefully you were able to cope with the sound quality of this episode. Very impressed with Bella. We only had to stop twice, so I'm happy with that. If you'd like to support the show financially, please do head over to Patreon. Um, so patreon.com forward slash seeingredpodcast. We've got merchandise to say thank you if you'd like to support us and bonus content. And there's some other episodes as well that are specially for yourselves. We try and get out an episode every month or so. The last couple of months has been a bit difficult, but we're back to normal sort of scheduling. Um, And basically, if you want to join us in the Facebook group or on Instagram, there's some really great chats that go on there. We'll set up a a discussion thread about this case and you can give us your ideas. Also, if you've read the book, get in touch and let me know if you have. Or if you're looking for a new true crime read, perhaps uh, this one. So it is called, um, let me just find the uh, proper title use my paper um right it is called death at wolf's nick the killing of evelyn foster i found my copy on amazon so it's it's available 
most places um, by Diane James. There's also the 1977 book, so Jonathan Goodman's book as well. And that's the one that really takes information from all of the current sort of at the time um, newspaper reports and the media from the time, whereas Diane's is based on a lot of the police investigation. So they're quite good to kind of look at both of those. Thanks for listening. Thanks for joining us. And um, we'll speak to you soon. Thanks for listening. Bye.